good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, we'll hear about the evolution of a Chicago theater company that's exploring the future of storytelling by expanding its offerings beyond the stage. I'll talk to the artistic director of Haven Chicago. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review the politically charged comedy Campaigns, Inc. Later in the show, I'll catch up with the programming director of the 37th annual Printers Row Lit Fest, which is coming up in a few weeks. And we'll hear about an immersive experience that's attracting music fans from around the Midwest. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. After COVID-19 erupted in March of 2020, theater companies all over the world were confronted with unprecedented questions of how to move forward. Some Chicago-area theater organizations quickly pivoted to make work available virtually as a way to continue engaging with audiences. As the pandemic intensified, some theater companies, realizing that in-person audiences wouldn't be returning anytime soon, began making work specifically designed for the digital space. It was, and still is, a strange time for theater companies that have had to navigate the many ups and downs of the past two and a half years. Most Chicago-area theater companies have reopened, cautiously welcoming audiences back to in-person productions. But not all theater organizations are going back to the way things were. Haven Chicago, formerly Haven Theater, is interested in exploring new avenues of storytelling. The company will be presenting its first-ever microfilm festival next weekend. It's called Festival O Cinema, and it represents the next step in an evolution of a company that's interested in new ways of connecting with audiences. I recently caught up with Haven Artistic Director Ian DeMont Martin at the Den Theater to talk about the company's ambitious plans. For folks that maybe aren't as familiar, how do you like to describe the mission of Haven? Absolutely, great question. We have been really intentional about this in the last couple of years. We actually took a major pause over the course of the pandemic and really refreshed our mission. And so now we're really sort of charged to embolden visionary and innovative artists in what we call an equitable haven of opportunity for the creation of innovative art at the forefront of theater, performance, and media. So the name is quite literal. Yeah, absolutely. We um, And also sort of try to em- embody those principles and our institutional values and how we go about carrying out the work. We like to say like, yeah, the product is really cool, but the process is equally, if not more important as that product. And now that product is kind of changing, in form at least. For most of its existence, Haven presented traditional live theatrical productions. Martin says that's changing. We started and cut our teeth in live theater and performance, and we're really intentionally shifting and expanding our focus into performance and media as well. Really just interested in the future of storytelling, really simply. I think that we've always have been really interested, though, in kind of diversions from 
conventional conventions of form, right, genre, mm-hmm. and even medium. And so we're really sort of pushing that intentionally into our programming, into our mission, and hopefully responding, I think, to the 21st century artist who I think is more than likely a multi-hyphenate. Did the pandemic speed up those plans because you were forced to? Absolutely. I mean, we couldn't do live performance anymore. Actually, we closed the show, right, in in that March, right, when when all the things were kicking off. We've always had that aspiration. I think since before I even joined the company, media has been in our mission, but it just hadn't been realized in our programming. And so the reality of not being able to do live performance and to gather audiences safely at the onset of the pandemic really was a perfect opportunity for us to step into this new sort of medium really intentionally. And then also, right, so many artists were engaging with digital platforms, right? We saw theaters really transition into streaming sort of services. Lots of multi-hyphenants now transitioning, you know, their engagement with their audiences to digital media. And we really just wanted to be a part of that conversation. Yeah, I think once it became clear the pandemic was going to be this longer thing and theater companies started putting out these virtual offerings, at first I was like, well, this is almost like they're making films is like is this even theater but then it's like it doesn't even really matter it's just like stories absolutely and it's like the access i think that some theater companies like we you know we found out pretty quickly it's not you know one-to-one it's apples and oranges right you can't just build a show that's embodied for space and just hope that that sentiment translates across the screen right you want to be intentionally cultivating that from the beginning and so we kind of did a virtual thing or two and we were like okay i think we're done with that (laughs) we're going to actually maybe intentionally cultivate digital media we're going to talk about this uh festival uh, cinema coming up but what's it been like coming out of the we've done a couple of things uh we knew that we were going to intentionally step into the media space we knew that We wanted to produce our sort of inaugural media project and also this festival that I'm sure we'll get more into in a moment. Um, And so we started figuring out what that meant. We found a really exciting local partner, Full Spectrum Features, to come on board to produce a screenplay that I've written and and directed. Uh, We just, we're in post-production now. Um, And so the plan is we won't screen it this year. We'll give a little bit of a sneak peek in the festival, uh, but we'll screen it in next year's festival after our our film festival run. And so we started pre-production on Safe Face, which is the name of the short. Um, And we also started to investigate what does our programming look like now. We did a really exciting virtual Rocky Horror party that was like really weird and super successful um, that first year of the pandemic and so successful we decided to bring it back in a kind of immersive party experience here. Um, And so I really don't think that would have happened without the pandemic. You know, I don't think we would have thought about that show. We wouldn't have been able to program it really. And now we've got this kind of new, exciting, immersive event that's, I think, like the third most successful production in Haven's history. So we're just learning a lot and trying to adapt and, and be responsive, I think, to the space and the moment that we're in. And you mean successful, like in terms of audience engagement? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a weird event. No one had ever heard of it. I mean, we, we call it science fiction double feature. And if you know anything about Rocky Horror, you kind of get it. And yeah, there are moments from the the show, you know, that we allude to. But it's mostly just an immersive experience. You know, we had, there was a belly dancer and uh, burlesque and, and pole dancers and 
uh, tarot readers and it was just like nothing I think anyone had ever experienced before but we sold to capacity and in terms of like our ticket sales like for a two-night event it was fiscally Haven's third most successful show when naturally we run a production maybe like four weeks right and we did this two nights and we're hitting numbers that we you know we're not used to with that kind of programming it sounds like yeah, Haven was quick to pivot and like embrace this kind of new new way of connecting with audiences using digital tools. Do you think audiences are there? Like, are they ready to embrace that? I think it's still developing. I think you know we've heard the phrase like Zoom burnout, yeah. <laughs> and I still think it's true. You know, um, and so I think that we're going to need new tools. We're going to need better tools and more intentional, more specific tools for the ways in which people start to engage with this media, with this content, with this art. I think it's really interesting seeing how some of the big networks have made movies so much more accessible in the last two years. I mean, the fact that I can click in on my screen and watch something that has just yeah. premiered right in my home, I think is, I never thought I would see that day. And so, but that's still a tool we were used to. I'm, I'm really interested to see what new tools, what new processes and frameworks need to be sort of implemented so that those connections are, I think a lot, so those connections are sustained. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section on WDCB. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Haven Chicago Artistic Director Ian DeMont Martin. Let's talk about this new program that, that's coming up. It's called Festival of Cinema. Should I say that with a, a French accent? <laughs> if you like, right? Uh-huh. Festival of or Festival of Cinema. You know, uh, we were really looking to cultivate community. I mean, coming from predominantly the theater space and really seeing how quickly an actor will, you know, take an understudy role at Chicago Shakespeare and a lead role in a company like Haven, but also run across town to maybe book two lines in Chicago PD, right? And so an actor is really sort of moving interchangeably between the communities and not a lot of orgs or programs are sort of operating in that space. And so, like I said, through the pandemic and really the opportunity that it presented, we've launched Festival of Cinema, which is coming up August 26th through 28th. It's our Haven's new platform for emerging, visionary, innovative filmmakers and digital storytellers who are hopefully staking their claim in the future of the medium. Uh, So we've got, I think maybe 20 different shorts we're screening. We saw submissions in this first year from seven different countries, over 50 films, you know, which was really wild because we're a first time Mm -hmm. film festival. We're coming from the theater space and so no one really knows us, um, but we're really excited to platform some of the exciting work we're seeing. Yeah, I was going to ask, so the, as far as like putting it together, you took kind of like a film festival approach and you put out a call and then people just started submitting? Absolutely, yeah. We use Film Freeway. I think um, it's pretty popular amongst film festivals and also for people submitting to film festivals. So I think that really helped us because it's really, I, I think, artist-based and also programmatically based. And so, yeah, um, it's really, I think, accessible, really, really easy to use and got a ton of interest. And what were you, and I don't know if you had a team of programmers, what were you looking for as far as the films that would be part of this? Yeah, I mean, we were looking for a number of things. Um, Obviously, you know, what's at the heart of the story? 
we're really always interested in sort of uh, diversions of form. You know, um, one of the films that we've got in the festival is called I Used to Write with My Left Hand, which is uh, a movement-driven film. And so as elements of dance and movement and, and direct address and personal narrative. Um, and so we saw submissions of people really uh, experimenting with filmmaking. Um, and we're excited to see, like, once, you know, this festival's done, what kind of work we see next year. Um, but we're looking for quality. We're looking for, uh, you know, interesting ways of making narratives and telling stories, diversions of form and genre and format, structure even to some degree. It's that feeling you get when you uh, watch something on a screen that transports you somewhere but does it in a way that's unexpected. And so that's kind of what we've been looking for. Was there an effort to include local submission? Absolutely. Um, I mean, lots of local promotion. I mean, we're Haven, but we're, I mean, our full name is Haven Chicago. And so our community is really Chicago-based. The artists that we're working with are Chicago-based, and we know many of those artists are working in the media and digital space. And so we've got a whole block of Chicago films, and they're not the only films that are made in Chicago, but I think they're uniquely Chicago in that way. Um, and we're, we hope to get more in the future. What will the um, experience, uh, it's three nights, so if somebody listening to this wants to come out, it's going to be here at the, the Den Theater, like a, a traditional film screening? Yeah, the Den is a really fun kind of eclectic space. Um, I think for the most part it's been known for live performance, uh, lots of theater in recent years and recent months, lots of live comedy. And so we're excited to really sort of activate it potentially as a screening in a film space as well. It'll be three nights, August 26th through the 28th. We start on that Friday the 26th with a filmmaker mixer. Everyone's sort of invited to come out, meet the filmmakers as they sort of descend on the festival. And then we'll start our programming shortly thereafter. We've got that Chicago shorts block that evening. There's a, a solo screening, two solo screenings on Friday night. And then it picks up on Saturday. Saturday, there's a really fun brunch program where we're screening Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Brunch and drag queens and Hedwig. So like, what, do you, what more do you want? <laughs> um, so that starts off the Saturday morning. We pick back up with a documentary block. There's a block of films. Um, called Women Direct. They're not the only women directors in the festival, but I think they're uniquely women voices in those stories. And then we continue into the night. There's um, a quarantine block of films. I think films that are really sort of responding to the isolation of the quarantine moment. And then Sunday is the encores. There's a block from 12 to 3 where we'll be rescreening the Chicago shorts block, the quarantine block, and also one of the solo screenings, which is called Marathon Mindset, which is super exciting. And then we'll close out the night with Haven's second annual fundraising gala called Made in Chicago, also here in the Den, where we'll be giving a little bit of a sneak peek of our first film project. The focus is on, on this festival, but the rest of the year, does Haven have other things coming up, or is the, the focus more long-term? Yeah, so actually this festival is our last program of the season, but technically our season starts <laughs> the next day. Oh. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, once we close the film festival and wrap up with the gala, we'll move into Director's Haven. It's actually Director's Haven 6, which is our annual 
sort of director development program where we give three emerging new directors sort of everything that they need to direct and realize a short play and all three of them run in rep and so we've done that this will be our sixth iteration that starts our season um, we'll have a main stage in the spring summer um, that'll be a really exciting play called art of bowing so i'm really looking forward to that um, totally am forgetting we have that party I mentioned, the science fiction double feature, the Rocky Horror theme party, is that Halloween weekend in October. And then, yeah, we'll be back this time next year with the film festival and our gala. Ian, thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate it, Gary. Thanks for having us. That was Haven Chicago Artistic Director Ian DeMont Martin. The organization's first ever film festival, Festival of Cinema, will take place Friday, August 26th through Sunday, August 28th. You can find more information at havenshy.org. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the Arts Section every week, make sure to check out the program's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus additional content that goes along with all the features you hear on the program. Check out theartsection.org, and you can also find my email address there, gzydek at wdcb.org, if you want to drop me a line, or you can find me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at On Air Gary. Thanks for tuning in this Sunday morning. And you are listening to the art section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Good morning, sir. We Americans know that every couple of years we're going to be inundated with negative, sometimes downright nasty political ads on our screens, on our radios, and in our mail for months at a time. I used to do uh, more local news here at the station, and I would interview political scientists about negative campaigning, and the consensus was always, nobody likes it, but it works. <laughs> Timeline Theater's world premiere play Campaigns, Inc. shines a comedic light on the true story of the pioneering political consultant couple Whitaker and Baxter. The play is set in the mid-1930s, but the reverberations of their real-life work are still being felt today. Campaigns, Inc. comes from Timeline Theater Company member Will Allen and is being directed here by Timeline Associate Artistic Director Nick Bowling. And we'll turn to, to Carrie. Usually when I use the term pioneer or pioneering, it's to describe a positive innovation. But in the case of Whitaker and Baxter, maybe not so much. Not so much. I mean, they weren't necessarily doing anything that hadn't been done before. They were just doing more of it and bringing it all kind of under one umbrella of political consultancy. There have been negative ads. There have been scurrilous accusations. What Baxter and Whitaker did was really set themselves up as the people who could bring it all together. They could do your direct mail. They could do your 
what at their time was, you know, multimedia, which meant newsreels. Um, this was all in the service of stopping the writer Upton Sinclair from becoming the governor of California. Sinclair, who is probably best known for writing The Jungle, which most Chicagoans are probably very familiar with, um, had previously run for office a couple times in California as a socialist, hadn't gotten very far. He decided out of a, a sense of pragmatism to run for the Democratic nomination for governor. And I got more votes than I believe any candidate, GOP or Dem, had received at that point. So this made the people in California, the Republican power structure, and it was a very Republican state at the time, let us remember, pretty nervous, also given that FDR is in the White House and the New Deal is, you know, coming together. Um, so there was a sense of urgency of we've got to stop this guy. And that's pretty much where the story picks up. Jonathan? Oh, well, I would also say that it's a very lively, fact-based play, and it's set very specifically in 1934 when uh, this election, this factual election took place. But the play is written and staged in the style of a screen screwball comedy of the 1930s, combining rom-com with politics. And, Kerry, as you have explained, uh, while it's about the gubernatorial contest between Frank Marion and Upton Sinclair, uh, the real story concerns the, the development of the first political marketing agency, hence the play's title, Campaigns Incorporated. Uh, and it's brilliant, brilliantly amoral founders, Leona Baxter <laughs> and Clem Whitaker, who eventually married and continued their political dirty work well into the yeah. 1960s. The literary style, a screwball comedy, is really, I think, a clever conceit by playwright Will Allen. And it owes a lot to populist film director Frank Capra, from its rapid-fire dialogue to its relatively short, snappy scenes and quick pacing to its backroom political bluster. And right. Nick Bowling uh, has staged campaigns incorporated in really worthy style with a great assist, I think, from the costume design uh, designs, from the projection designs, which work very wonderfully, and also a brilliant selection of 1930s music to bridge each of the many scene changes. And I really enjoyed all that. I did as well. And uh, Terry Hamilton plays Frank Merriam, who's the GOP contender against Upton Sinclair. And he felt, to me, he felt like he'd just stepped out of a Preston Sturgis film, The Great McGinty or something like that. Red-faced, blustering, you know, uh, more interested in playing golf than being uh, head of, of, of the state. I know that we have a hard time imagining any such person today, but that was, in fact, apparently one of the things Merriam did. You know, one of the things that I think is great about this, and you identified very aptly, Jonathan, this sort of screwball uh, sensibility, but you can find so many Easter eggs for our own time in there. You know, there's a line, um, what, what they ended up doing, just for our listeners, is they would take lines that Upton Sinclair wrote in his novels and present those with his name on it. Now, yes, he did write these things, but they're in the they voice his, of the characters, that they were his opinions right. on free love or, you know, yes. yeah, on yeah. the sanctity of marriage. And, you know, they had many willing people in the uh, newspaper publishing world, William Randolph Hearst, and then his papers and the Los Angeles Times are perfectly willing to print these. Louis B. Mayer, who shows up as a character, was very worried about the writers, you know, the Hollywood writers unionizing, so he was happy to put, you know, talent to work making newsreels, again, with selective editing and uh, really, really creating this idea of spin. And let's actually pause here for a moment. We have a, a clip from a scene in Campaigns, Inc. That, that deals exactly with what you're talking about. I no longer 
to believe in the sanctity of marriage. She said that? He sure did. When did he say that? That's the thing. What's the thing? He didn't exactly say it. I don't understand. Yeah. Explain it to George, because he doesn't understand. These aren't things he has said, technically speaking, but there isn't a word in there that didn't come straight from the mouth, or rather the mind, of Upton Sinclair. They're from his books. His books? This is just a bunch of fiction. We can't use this. Why not? Because. Because why, Mr. Hatfield? Well, I. What if someone calls us out on it? We tell the truth. Which is? That everything was indisputably thought of and written by Upton Sinclair. And that we found those ideas so worrisome. Oh. We felt it was our outright duty as American citizens to bring these shocking and borderline dangerous ways of thinking to life. This is a brilliant idea, Mr. Whitaker. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. I like this. I like it a lot. Will people believe it? Of course. This won't make me sound crazy. We can't afford to sound crazy. No one is going to sound crazy. You're not even going to say it. I'm confused again. We're going to deliver these vicious words directly to their homes. What? We're going to mail it to each and every person in the state of California. That's ridiculous. It's not. Imagine waking up, walking outside to get the mail, and you find this. I'm opposed to justice and kindness and set to making cruelty and pain. Upton Sinclair. He said that? Is he serious? You bet he did, Frank. You bet he did. The common voter won't know the context. They'll think this is a side of Upton Sinclair they didn't know existed. But he's famous. Won't people recognize the quotes and think it's hooey? That could cost us votes. You'd be surprised at how seldom people scratch at something to find what's below the surface, especially during times like these. That was a clip from Timeline Theater's new production, Campaigns, Inc. Carrie? But, you know, you can look at this and hear lines like, um, it's, it's, they're not lies, they're just a different version of the truth, and think, oh my gosh, where have we heard this before, right? And I have to say, too, I think there's an interesting development within the character of Sinclair. It's played very well, I thought, by Anish Shethalani, longtime Chicago actor. He's a very decent man, but he's also very much a purist, and he wants to get FDR's endorsement, but he's not fully willing to endorse FDR's New Deal because he doesn't think it goes far enough. With He has his own program, End Poverty in California, EPIC. And, you know, on the one hand, you can say, well, good for him for sticking to his principles. On the other, you want to say, but wait a minute, do you not understand how coalitions work? Do you not understand compromise and horse trading and all the other things that go into politics? And I think that that is a strain that we can certainly see with politicians, you know, from, from Sinclair on up to our present time. Uh, so even though, yes, it very much feels like a period piece, it doesn't feel in any way musty or dusty or quaint because these are still issues with which we are very much, you know, confronted. You know, you, you mentioned the character of Upton Sinclair, the, a principal mm-hmm. character in this, in this play, portrayed by Anish Jeff Malani. Um, and it is not his work as an actor, it is the writing with which I have a problem, because I will say that as, as much as I like many aspects of this play, curmudgeon that I am, I can't help having a few reservations. <laughs> um, and the first one, and it's really easy to fix, is you don't hear F-bombs in 1930s comedies. And playwright Allen really needs to cut the four-letter words and find more original and colorful ways for people to swear and bluster just as 1930s film authors did. There are ways to do it. It can be done. He needs to do that. Next, Upton Sinclair was not at all naive about politicking and utilizing media, but that's how Alan portrays him. And I think the play would have much more tension if Sinclair wasn't portrayed, written as such an easy victim for Leona and Clem. 
Third, I simply do not buy, and we haven't mentioned this before, I simply do not buy uh, the playwright's use of Charles Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin, as Sinclair's chief political advisor, especially since Chaplin quite infamously was never a U.S. citizen and couldn't vote in the U.S. Right. or California. He couldn't even vote in California elections. He's portrayed with charm and some physical resemblance by Dave Honigman. That part is fine, but that doesn't make the role work for me. And I think that's a, maybe a major fix that the play needs in, 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 right. in, the, in the next draft. Yeah, uh, I enjoyed... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, go ahead. Go I was going to say, I, I enjoyed Honigman's performance, too, but I think that the parallel they're trying to make of, you know, Sinclair trying to remake himself as a politician... Chaplin trying to remake himself as a star of talkies and struggling, you know, he's, when we meet him, he's trying to sell the idea of modern times, but he doesn't actually know how to write for, for, the, for the talkies yet. Um, they're, they're trying to establish this parallel. You know, I think the idea that they're going for, maybe you would disagree, Jonathan, but it feels like Sinclair wants to borrow some of the performative strengths of Chaplin. Chaplin wants to get some of the writerly voice of Sinclair, but that's not really fully developed, um, and it felt like more of an attempt to just kind of work in a popular, uh, you know, movie star of the era whose whose own career was kind of in flux at that point, uh, rather than it rather than an actual political parallel. Although there is interesting that just as Sinclair is in the play is reluctant to endorse a New Deal because he doesn't think it goes far enough. Chaplin, an avowed, I guess, an avowed communist, or at least one who never seemed to mind if, if he was, uh, you know, lumped in with, with communism, does not feel that Sinclair socialism goes far enough. So there is that kind of little bit of, wow, wherever you think you are in the spectrum, there's always going to be somebody, you know, a little bit further down than you are, and find and hoisting you on the petard of, of purity that you perhaps have, put, have you know have have used on others. Yeah, I but it's not enough to really justify the amount of stage time that we see with him. In the principal roles, we have Tyler Meredith and Yuri Sardarov making a very appealing pair as Leona Baxter and Clem Whitaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Alan has written Baxter as a feisty pro-feminist in an era of male-dominated politics, and Baxter really makes a strong impression in the role, really a standout. She lets Sardarov be the charming one of the pair. I miss having a little more background on both of them, though, so I can understand why they chose to be conservatives, uh, one of them having had been a Democrat, but why they chose the conservative point of view, and also to understand better their their amoral approach to politics. That's another task the playwright Will Allen might consider if he continues to work on this play. Right. But I will say that all in all, I think most playgoers will have a good time at Campaigns Incorporated. I certainly enjoy, enjoyed it, and it really resonates all too well with today's politics. And I would go back and reemphasize what you said about uh, Tyler Meredith as Leona Baxter. Yes, I mean, you see her as this strong, feisty woman, and it makes you wonder about, you know, so many women who are of the more conservative bent who are clearly very well, you know, equipped to function well in a male-dominated world, yet they still tend to cleave to the part of society that is pushing more traditional gender roles and traditional family roles. So there is, I think they could make more of that, or Alan could make more of that, dichotomy within her, because it's, it's, it's a really interesting one. Um, but the relationship between them as it is, again, it has 
every great screwball, you know, or, or uh, even Hepburn and Tracy. I think you could see, you know, elements of Adam's rib or something like that. You mentioned Capra, and I wanted to bring out one scene that I thought was quite effective. And, it, and it's a fairly familiar trope from Frank Capra, and perhaps more recently Aaron Sorkin. Sinclair apparently had a stutter, and this is, at least in the play, is presented as one reason he's not comfortable doing big public speeches. But he does this speech that we're set up to think, oh, this isn't going to go well for him. But as performed by Jeff Milani, it actually becomes, as, re- as he goes on, becomes this rousing barn burner. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and that's a really exciting, well-placed, dramatic moment. And it feels very much of a piece with, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, comes to mind immediately. Alan has obviously studied this genre. And I think what's great is that it's not merely pastiche or homage. Like, he, he has, and I, I agree, he could go deeper with the characters for sure, but he really has such love for this style that it's not just a riff, but he really is trying to weave this really interesting and complex political story using these mechanisms. And so given, I think, the difficulty of combining those, I was very pleased with the result. And I think there's obviously more that he can do with it. But I don't think anybody who sees it at this point will go away not being entertained <laughs> by the by the style itself. And Jonathan, you kind of uh, alluded to this, but I am curious uh, as far as Whitaker and Baxter is it that they're true believers in the conservative cause and this is their their calling or is it more that they're getting paid to do a job well it's 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 both but they they the, the play doesn't make it absolutely clear how they arrived at their politics but they come voluntarily to support uh, the Republican cause and oppose Upton Sinclair, even though Whitaker's family apparently were personal friends of Sinclair's. Right. So I, you know, I, I would like to understand a little more, a little deeper background on yeah. um, on how they evolved, how their their political perspectives evolved. Right. But even there, I mean, we can look at the strange bedfellows idea of Mary Madeline and James Carville being married, or more recently, I guess, you know, Kellyanne Conway and George Conway. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, although they are both more in the conservative mode, you know, part, as you were saying that, Gary, I thought perhaps part of it just goes back to you're building this, you know, this this political empire. You need the money to go into it. And who tends to have more of the money that they're pouring into, at least at that point, and at that point in California, you know, it was probably going to be the business interests. It was going to be uh, the Republicans who represented those business interests. So I'm not saying it was completely cynical, but... You know, one one does think about that Will Rogers quote about, I'm not a member of any organized political party, I'm a Democrat. So yeah, yeah, yeah. they might have yep. just thought, you know, we want to work with the people who are not, you know, who are not going to shoot us down and we'll just trust that we know what we're doing and get our vision of what we're building here. So. And then without giving anything away as far as spoilers, is there like an epilogue at the end that alludes to what the implications are from their actions here in the well, future? you know, I think that they went on. One of the things, it, 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 our listeners are old enough to remember the 1990s and the uh, the ads against, you know, it was called Hillary Care. Uh, I think there's a direct correlation to uh, those ads. I can't, Harry and Louise, were, that, were those names of the, the fictional characters we saw who were lamenting, you know, nationalization of health care? Um, that was a big area where Baxter and Whitaker went into, was really opposing any kind of, uh, you know, government-run or single-payer or, you know, expansion of of those, you know, anything outside of private health care. Yeah. So that they, they laid the groundwork for that, which is, of course, a battle we're still, we're still facing today. So, yeah. 
And, and Gary, to, to your point, an epilogue, it's not a spoken or acted epilogue. They have a series of projected titles, the kind that you have sometimes even now at the end of a, of a, of a film that's based on history or a documentary that tells you what happened to all the characters. This one went on to a successful career. This one was brought down and so forth. And yes, that's where we find out that the firm that, uh, that uh, Baxter and Whitaker started had a, a, a very successful history over the course of the next 30-plus uh, years. Seems like this could work as a movie as well. Yes, I think it could. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, they could shoot it in black and white. Just <laughs> comedy of the 30s. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think that it helps that Nick Bowling, and I think you would agree with me, Jonathan, he's got a real dab hand at this sort of mid-century sensibility, and I've seen it in so many plays that he's directed in the past. So I think that, in that sense, that is a happy marriage of, of a script yeah. and director. Yeah, absolutely. Timeline Theater's world premiere, Campaigns, Inc., continues through September 18th. Gary, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. You're most welcome. It's always great to talk with you and talk with Gary. You're tuned into the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Pop music icon Prince would have turned 64 this year. He passed away on April 21st, 2016, leaving behind an adoring fan base that eagerly anticipated his next live performance or album. Born Prince Rogers Nelson, the Minneapolis native is one of the best-selling music artists of all time. Over 150 million of his records have been sold. A new interactive Prince exhibition is offering fans a new way to connect with the late pop star. Prince, the immersive experience, is having its world premiere in Chicago. It was created by New York-based entertainment company Superfly in collaboration with the Prince Estate. Visitors are able to experience 10 unique rooms that offer settings for plenty of Instagram-worthy pics, but there's also a tremendous amount of biographical information about Prince. I visited the Immersive Prince Experience earlier this summer and caught up with Superfly co-founder Carrie Black to talk about the creation of this new Prince exhibit. I'm curious, what's the, the starting point for something like this? Yeah, you know, it was it started with Superfly. We started doing these walkthrough experiences around uh, TV shows. We do, we've been doing them around the Friends, uh, and we had The Office more recently. And uh, we're a music company first and foremost. We're you know, started off doing music festivals, and so it was a very natural progression for us to look to do it around music. And Prince was really just, you know, first choice, one of our favorite artists, and he's got such a visual, you know, style to him, and he's just such a mysterious character, and he's so inspiring. There's just so much around. He just seems like a perfect person um, to do an experience around. And um, so we've been working with the estate for about two years now, and they've been amazing. They've been introducing us to everyone in his sphere so you know whether it's um, designers he worked with or musicians uh, photographers we've really just kind of gone into his world to like work with all these people to make sure what we're building is authentic and stuff that he would be you know excited about the task of then creating an immersive experience that fully explores the life of an icon like prince then falls to the superfly team really it's you know it started with us just brainstorming on like what are the what do we want to do here and you know how can we make this experience you know unique and different you know i think we, we wanted to do sort of two things with this is 
first, you know, showcase who he was with, um, you know, your more traditional the memorabilia, the guitars, the outfits, um, to really kind of learn a little bit about who he was. But also, we really wanted to make this more of an entertainment experience, and we wanted it to be fun, sort of an amusement park of Prince, right? And so, having these more immersive and interactive areas to uh, to really delve into. Um, to create that more immersive exhibit that people really just have a good time at. And then as far as the estate then, did they loan you authentic pieces of yep. princes? Yeah, they've been working with us throughout. They're loaning us um, pieces and they've been just, you know, really working with us on every detail to make sure it's correct and, uh, and true to who he was. If you're just tuning in, this is the art section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Carrie Black, the co-founder of Superfly, the New York-based company behind the new Immersive Prince experience that just opened in Chicago. Black believes the experience has something to offer the entire spectrum of Prince's extremely diverse fan base. Yeah, I think, you know, I really want them to be sort of inspired by Prince and kind of take that into their everyday life. Um, he was someone, and you'll learn a lot about that in the experience of like what sort of made him tick, but um, he was just a very inspirational character. And um, on top of that, we just want people to really have a good time and, and, and really come in and, you know, go deep. Um, there's tons of details throughout the experience, so really, um, yeah, really go deep and have fun. It does provide a little beyond just folks that are familiar with Purple Rain. You can learn about his, he was a trailblazer for musician rights. Yeah, absolutely. That was an important important part to us to really showcase um, so who he was. Uh, like you mentioned, the artist rights is a really big part of his story. You know, a lot of people don't know that story and, and how, you know, like he changed his name to a symbol. There was actually a real reason for that. It was because of his... Um, you know, battle over this, the rights to his songs and wanting to release material at the, at the rate that he wanted to. Um, he didn't just do that because he was a crazy artist. He had a, a real intention behind it. Um, and all of that really changed the music industry forever and how people write their contracts and how they go about, you know, trying to own their own music and masters. you have a favorite Prince song? Uh, I have many. It changes by the day, but a, a couple of favorites. Um, you know, nine-year-old me, when I got into Prince, it was Computer Blue. And they have a, they released a few years ago uh, a 13-minute version of called the Hallway Speech version of Computer Blue, which I highly recommend checking out. It's on the Purple Rain Super Deluxe. It's incredible. And then uh, Everlasting Now is another favorite from the Rainbow Children record. So some, some deeper cuts, and then the experience kind of ends with people can take a mini personality test to get like their perfect Prince playlist. Absolutely, that's uh, that's one we're really most excited about. You know. Just for, by going through this process, one of the, the great things has been just to really dive in and, and to learn about all the <clears throat> deep cuts, all the vault tracks they've been releasing over the years, and uh, all just discovering all that was so amazing that we wanted to do a space where you know people coming through could do that too, could really go deeper on his catalog and find music that would resonate with them. You know, so in that listening experiences area, there are no there are no hits. It's all the deep cuts and vault tracks. So tons to discover. That's Kerry Black, the co-founder of Superfly, the company producing Prince, the immersive experience, which is making its world premiere in Chicago. It's located at 540 North Michigan Avenue and is scheduled to run through October 9th. You can find more information at PrinceTheExperience.com. Gary Zydek, you're tuned into the arts section. One of Chicago's longest-running festivals will continue next month. 
The 37th annual Printer's Row Lit Fest is set to take place Saturday, September 10th and Sunday the 11th along a stretch of South Dearborn. What started in 1985 as a small book fair is now considered one of the biggest literary festivals in the country. Presented by the Near South Planning Board, this year's Printer's Row Lit Fest will kick off with Evanston-based Pulitzer Prize winner and two-term United States Poet Laureate Natasha Trethewey, who will be awarded with this year's Harold Washington Literary Prize. Chicago books and authors will also be celebrated with a variety of unique presentations, as will institutions with Chicago connections like the Poetry Foundation and The Onion. I recently caught up with Amy Danzer, the new programming director for Printer's Row, to chat about this year's festival. So the the origins of this festival go back to the, the mid-80s, and so many things have changed, but Printer's Row is still going strong. Yeah, 37 years is a long time, especially when you've got, you know, just a lot of other events and festivals are celebrating their, you know, fifth and 10 year anniversaries. To do something that's generational is pretty significant. And I'm not sure exactly how it, how it, how it's been able to, you know, work every year. Betty Surf Hill, who's the founder of the, the fest, she's actually still very involved. She's She's in our team meetings. I think that the city really loves it and supports it. And the literary community just really, it's just, it's something very special. I think everybody gets behind um, to keep it going. So, And then this is your first year as program director. So what's what's the starting point when you, you start the, the process of programming something like this? You know what? Ideally, earlier in the year, I think this year um, we just got a little bit of a later start, so like spring, but um, um, usually like January, I think, is kind of like when we open uh, open things up for applications. And then as far as the actual programming, what was your approach to selecting the authors and books that would be featured at this year's event? A lot of things kind of go into just what we end up selecting for the schedule. We are definitely interested in topics that speak to bigger issues. This year we've got at least one event that addresses, you know, reproductive rights in this country. Um, we have uh, one of our books and deals with um, substance abuse. We've got, you know, um, the health the health system. So we're interested in, you know, topical events. We're interested in providing a variety of different things for families, children. We have several um, children's programs. We have Theater on the Hill from Bolingbrook that's going to be coming out to do an interactive choose-your-own-adventure kind of fairy tale presentation, which should be fun. We've got um, Carlos Theater that's going to be doing a puppet show. They're from, they're from Pilsen neighborhood. That should be really great. Those will both be on Saturday morning. And um, one of our partners is the Poetry Foundation. They're going to have a couple of programs geared toward children. Um, so we like to keep you know families in mind. Um, we're interested in bringing to the city of Chicago um, names from across the country. So we do have you know, some New York Times bestsellers from New York and California, um, here in the Midwest. Um, so we're excited about that. We've got um, Jamie Ford, who is going to be uh, one of our presenters. He was just, um, he's currently on the New York Times bestseller list. He was an August selection for Jenna Bush Hager's book club. Um, really, really excited about him coming. And I can, I mean, I can get more into details uh, about, you know, presenters, but just going back to 
your question about how we select, you know, presenters, I think a lot of, you know, we're, we're also very interested in having Chicago authors representative or represented at the festival. So like more than 50% of the presenters are, you know, authors, poets, writers, um, fiction writers, nonfiction writers um, who are housed here in Chicago. I know the, the presenting organization, the Near South Planning Organization, also gives out the Harold Washington Literary Award every year. So this year, the poet Natasha Trethaway is the is going to be the recipient. Yeah, that's that's right. She's um, we're super excited to have her. She's she's um, she teaches at Northwestern these days, but she's just you know speaking at graduations and and all over. She's she's fantastic. Uh, she's a Pulitzer Prize winner and two term United States Poet Laureate. So. We're really excited to, to be able to honor her with the Harold Washington Literary Award. And then will she also um, take part in an event, too? Yeah, so thir- I think it's Thursday night. That's the dinner. That's when she'll be awarded the prize. And then Saturday morning, she'll be in conversation with Donna Seaman from Booklist. She's the adult um, books editor for Booklist. Donna's just, you know, just wonderful. She's a Hall of Famer here in Chicago. <laughs> I think most writers here in the city of Chicago have been encountered her at some point or another. Yeah, so we're excited about that presentation. Past recipients for the Harold Washington Literary Award have included like Ta-Nehisi Coates. He was um, given the award last year. Chicago's very own Alex Kotlowitz in 2019, Stuart Dybeck, Sarah Paretsky, Dave Eggers, Ralph Ellison, Saul Bellow, Susan Sontag. So quite uh, quite the lineup of, of talent. Oh, yeah. What a legacy. Yeah. So then you also mentioned the Poetry Foundation, and this year there's this, uh, like, a, a dedicated poetry tent. It seems like a natural fit since the Poetry Foundation is based here in Chicago. What led to, to that idea? You know what? The Poetry Foundation is just so supportive of so many programs here in the city, um, and I know that they've partnered in different ways um, with with the Printers Row Lit Fest over the years. But yeah, this is their first year, you know, having their own programming. So we're really excited for that. And they've they've given the stage to a number of literary organizations here in town. So for example, the, the Chicago Poetry Center will have a reading on the Poetry Foundation stage. The Chicago Literary Hall of Fame will, Rhino Poetry, Young Chicago Authors will also have poets like Roger Reeves on the stage. Roger Reeves is a, just a phenomenal uh, poet, and he's got a new book out entitled The Best Barbarian, and he's flying in Austin, Texas for this, and he'll be in conversation with Simone Mensch. We'll also have Chris Abani. He's an award-winning poet who actually uh, teaches with Natasha Trethaway at Northwestern, um, but he has a new book out too, Smoking the Bible, it's called. And, um, yeah, so we're really excited about what they've got lined up. And then you touched on some of the, the programming, and there's, like, a whole list of, of things, and I think some of it's still being announced. People listening can go to the Printer's Row Lidfest website to get a list, but a couple of things that, that stuck out to me. The Onion, which everyone knows, they're going to be doing a special program. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're going to have the stage for, for a slot. Um, we also have the Moth. Um, so the moth is celebrating, I think it's like 50 years of live storytelling and they have a, a book that they've just put together. So there's, they're going to be free 
copies of that book for their presentation. Um, and in terms of other programming, we've got Literary Deathmatch. Have you ever been to a Literary Deathmatch? I don't think I have. Okay. So it's basically, um, it's, it's like part literary event, part game show, part comedy show. It's got like three judges. You know, one can be a literary genius, one can be a comedian, and then there's like an intangible. It could be a musician, a juggler, a belly dancer, uh, just whatever. And so, and then they, they basically are in a position to judge um, four Chicago writers. And then the two that advance to the second round end up competing in something completely ridiculous, <laughs> like like pin the tail on Ernest Hemingway or something oh, okay. like that. So yeah, it's a lot of energy, a lot of fun. Adrian Zaniga, um, he he runs it. He's actually coming in from I believe Australia to put it on. That should be a really good show. That's going to be on Saturday afternoon. Do the judges so, uh, take the form of like a Simon or Randy and a Paula? <laughs> Is one like a nice one? No, I don't know. There is a no meanness rule, so okay. it's all in good fun. Like no one ends up dead or <laughs> pit or anything like that. So, so for some of these things, is it just show up and or yeah. do you have to reserve a place? Nope. The the entire festival is free, open to the public. You know, I think we might there might be some you know just facebook event links or something like that out there just to kind of you know get word out about events but you know there's there's no one taking down names for you know registration or anything like that so yeah people can just happen upon an event and just enjoy and then so we've been focusing on the uh, the programs that are going to be going on over the two days but then there's also a great opportunity to, to actually buy books that's right yeah there's going to be i think there are maybe like close to 100 exhibitors who, I mean, the, mo- the majority of them are booksellers from all over the place, all over the country. Um, I'm actually trying to encourage a girlfriend of mine to do a documentary about Israel Lit Fest because there are just so many amazing stories that come out of, you know, just being involved in the fest in so many ways or attending the fest. And I would just love to hear some of the stories from the vendors who travel from, you know, other parts of the country specifically for this festival. But, um, you know, some some vendors and exhibitors have been attending the festival or exhibiting at the fest for, for ages, some since the very beginning. Um, a story that was told to me recently was about a couple who met at the festival and maybe even got married at the festival. This could be lore. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> could be getting a little carried away because I know that, you know, we want to anthologize it. But, um, yeah. So it should be great. I mean, I, I don't know if, when was the last time you were at the fest? I went the two years after college, so like in the mid-aughts. Uh, I remember going two summers in a row, but I'm sure a lot's changed since then. We, yeah, we got to get you fast. <laughs> um, sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, it's just fun to hear people's stories, too. too. Like their, their first time at the fest or their last time or like what was the most exciting, you know, like what authors did they get to meet? Um, and that is what's really neat about the festival, too, is that, you know, people can just hear writers talk about the process, talk about the imagination and their ideas, and, and, the, and people can meet the authors, too. Um, 
if they don't run off to, you know, Bar Louie or Roots <laughs> or Half Sour in the neighborhood afterwards. But a lot of a lot of the authors stick around to sign books. And we do have some local independent bookstores who are going to be um, selling our the books of our presenters, namely um, the bookseller that's um, based in Lincoln Square. I don't know if you've ever been there, but yeah. it's just it's a fantastic little bookstore with just everything you could want, you know, an incredible selection. And then also a cafe, you know, with wine and beer and baked goods. And then and then also Sandmeyer Books, Sandmeyer's Books, um, which is right there on Dearborn in Printer's Row neighborhood. Um, they've been there forever. And they're, Ellen Sandmeyer is just wonderful. And she's also going to be one of the sellers at the fest. So she has like a home like, field advantage. Yes, she does. <laughs> <laughs> And then just to give uh, our listeners that maybe haven't had a chance to go a sense of the scope of it, this is one of the the bigger book festivals in the country? Yeah, it's definitely the biggest book festival between, you know, L.A. and New York here in the Midwest. But we get like sometimes over 100,000 people, like foot traffic that come through that weekend. We have over 100 authors who are going to be presenting. We have five stages. Um, that'll be running each day from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. And so there's going to be close to 80 different programs that people can choose from. Um, and that's basically my life, too, <laughs> setting it all up uh, between now and, uh, and nine, September 10 and 11. But but it, it takes over, like, blocks. Um, and along Dearborn in particular – for I think it's like three or four blocks. Um, it's just a stretch of vendors and exhibitors, booksellers. So you can, you know, you can kind of go, you can buy a book for a dollar and you can buy brand new books. Um, they're, they're collector's items. There's just all kinds of fun stuff. There are also authors who are going to have, you know, who are selling their books directly um, to the public. And then there's also literary organizations from Chicago, from all over Chicago who participate in exhibiting. And so it's also kind of a neat thing to be able to connect with literary organizations. Like if anybody out there is like interested in working for a literary organization or volunteering, that's definitely the place to do some networking. And I highly encourage people to do that, to take advantage of that. I don't think enough people know that or do that. It's always such a great time. I mean, and then people stick around afterwards, you know, and there are just some really nice little restaurants and bars in the neighborhood that people hang out in and, you know, continue conversations. That's Amy Danzer. She's the programming director for the 37th annual Printer's Row Lit Fest. It's taking place Saturday, September 10th and Sunday, September 11th along five blocks in the Printer's Row neighborhood. You can find more information at printersrowlitfest.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. 
enjoy these last few weeks of summer here in Chicago. Thanks for listening. That's how I'd cry on my pillow If you should tell me farewell and goodbye Lullaby a birdland whisper low Kiss me sweet and we'll go Flying high in birdland High in the sky up above All because we're in love